Today is Shabbat Zachor. Maybe you've heard of that. All of the uh, Shabbat days, or almost all the Shabbat days leading up to Passover, have a particular theme. And uh, it's just kind of interesting that uh, the way it works out, uh, we have uh, uh, the Shabbat before Purim uh, begins that series of uh, thematic Shabbat days. And they have to do with a variety of, um, a variety of themes, uh, all having to do, of course, with the faithfulness of God and, and uh, what he does uh, in our lives. And we're called to remember, right? We're, in fact, we're called to remember lots of things. Uh, in our uh, uh, MSI course on the first part of Deuteronomy, we learn there that remembering is uh, the, the main message, uh, in fact. Uh, remembering who God is. It's not remembering in the sense of like, oh, like, uh, you know, uh, like me getting Jeanette's name wrong, right? Like, there you go. How does that happen? I don't know. But uh, uh, it's, uh, it's recognizing that God is king. And in the Bible, the uh, opposite of remembering, right, is forgetting. And what forgetting means is not forgetting about God, but disobeying God. Uh, living as if uh, he doesn't exist or it doesn't matter, Right? Uh, and so uh, Shabbat Zachor is a particular remembrance. Uh, it is specifically a reminder of the command that we read in Deuteronomy chapter 25 in verses 17 and 19. In fact, uh, traditionally what's done on this Shabbat is uh, we read the, re the regular Torah portion, but then we also read sometimes even from a different Torah scroll sometimes, uh, this passage in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 17 to 19. It says, Remember what Amalek did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt, how he met you along the way and attacked among you all the stragglers at your rear when you were faint and weary, and he did not fear God. Therefore, it shall come about when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your surrounding enemies in the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance to possess. You shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Uh, you must not forget. So this is particularly um, aggravating to God, to use that uh, uh, terminology. Because, you know, a lot of people do a lot of things that are bad, but he doesn't say blot everybody's name out. But the Amalekites in particular. So to appreciate this, you have to go back to Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17, beginning in verse 8. Now, uh, uh, you know, the, the Israelites have come out of Egypt. Uh, they are on the other side of the Red Sea. They sang the song, you, you know, and now they're in the wilderness uh, and this is a whole new world of following God. Uh, uh, many uh, fears among the people, uh, not knowing really what the future was going to hold for them at all. And this is what happens in verse 8. 
Then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose men for us and go out, fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will station myself on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. And Joshua did just as Moses told him and fought against Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. So it came about when Moses held his hand up that Israel prevailed. And when he left his hand down, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy. Then they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, and Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other. Thus his hands were steady until the sun set. So Joshua overwhelmed the Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And the Lord said to Moses, Write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and named it, The Lord is my banner. And he said, The Lord has sworn the Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. So this is a particularly uh, problematic thing, this issue of, uh, of Amalek. And so uh, in uh, Deuteronomy, in uh, Devarim, uh, Moses is getting ready to die, and the children are on the plains of Moab, and they're going to enter the land, uh, God says uh, through Moses, remember what happened. Remember that thing about blotting out the, the Amalekites? Uh, that's still there, and don't forget. Don't forget about it. Uh, and so, uh, as you know from uh, Bible history, right? the Amalekites are a thorn in the side of Israel in the book of Judges, uh, they're a thorn in the side, uh, uh, in the side of, of Israel uh, in the days of uh, Saul and also of David. Okay? The Haftorah portion uh, that we read today, the Haftorah portion was chosen because of the situation with, uh, with Saul, where uh, Saul does not blot out all of the Amalekites. He saves the king, and he saves uh, the animals, and, and so on. Uh, and uh, Saul uh, or Samuel comes, and Saul says, "Hey, look! I did everything you you said to do. It's all good." And a sacrifice as well. And Saul and 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 Samuel says, "I'm hearing the bleeding of sheep. Right? You didn't do everything. Better to be obedient uh, than to sacrifice. Obey," he says. Obey the voice of the Lord, or hear, even literally you could say, hear the voice of the Lord. And isn't it interesting that uh, Saul, it's in this portion where Saul is told that he's not going to, uh, he's forfeiting uh, the, the, the kingship. And uh, there's a lot of reasons we could say of, of that. It's, he didn't have a heart for God like David did. But isn't it interesting, it comes over this issue of not blotting out the Amalekites. This is, again, a particularly problematic thing, this issue of the Amalekites. Well, we do read in 1 Samuel chapter 27 uh, about the destruction of the Amalekites, almost all of them, in uh, 1 Samuel 27 in verses 8 and 9 regarding David. 
Now David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites and the, Gear, uh, the, the, the Gearsites and the Amalekites, for they were the inhabitants of the land from ancient times, as you come to Shur, even as far as Egypt. And so uh, here uh, we see that David basically takes care of the Amalekites. But then we read in another place, in 1 Chronicles uh, chapter 43, all the way until the days of Hezekiah. In uh, chapter 4, 1 Chronicles 4.43. So it says, And they destroyed the remnant of the Amalekites who escaped and have lived there to this day. So the, the, the Amalekites are eventually wiped out. We don't see uh, Amalekites. But this issue of uh, blotting out their name was very important. Uh, but why now? Why today? Why are we reading it today on this date? Well, because as I'm sure many of you are aware, Haman is a descendant of the Amalekites, right? And so it's related to Purim in that way. Haman, uh, this great uh, nemesis uh, of the Jewish people uh, in Persia, uh, is a descendant of Agag, the Agagite, who was the king of the Amalekites back in that we read in Saul's, in, in Saul's day. And so uh, our ancient sages decided that we should read that passage in Deuteronomy and always remember the Amalekites. It's kind of ironic, isn't it, that we're supposed to blot out their name, yet every year we have to read about blotting out their name, right? So we kind of like remember about forgetting the Amalekites uh, it, you know, uh, uh, at Shabbat Zachor. But there's uh, obviously something more to it uh, than that not just simply blot out the Amalekites, uh, but uh, perhaps there are several reasons why uh, we read about this great uh, nemesis of the Jewish people and God's desire to blot out their name uh, as we prepare for, for Purim, right? We know that at Purim, we kind of go through uh, a tradition of blotting out uh, the Amalekites, don't we? Right? What do we do? We, uh, you know, whenever we hear Haman's name at, uh, the, uh, at the reading of the, the Megillat Esther, which we'll be doing this Wednesday, this coming Wednesday evening, right? We have noisemakers, boo, all that. I always like to say that's a great a way to introduce people to Beth Messiah, that, <laughs> that this is kind of what we do, you know, you know what I mean? It's a uh, uh, one of our uh, interesting traditions. Uh, so uh, we kind of blot out the name of the Amalekites uh, at Purim. So we're reminded of that uh, uh, on Shabbat Zachor. But perhaps there's some other lessons, of course, that we, uh, we could get out of this, of remembering the blotting out of the Amalekites. One is, is the mercy of God, remembering the mercy of God in that he has sustained the Israelites, the Jewish people, right? For thousands of years, despite all kinds of opposition, right? It's, uh, it goes without saying uh, that uh, 
while we don't read about uh, Girishites and Hittites uh, or Amalekites, we read about Israelites. We might even know some, right? Uh, and uh, the fact is, is that the, the testimony of the existence of Jewish people today uh, is a testimony of the faithfulness of God. We could talk about all of the different difficulties and persecutions and, and uh, things of that nature, but it, it really is miraculous to think that today, after all these years, not only is there a land of Israel, but there's a spoken Hebrew language, you, you know, which in and of itself is, is uh, an, an amazing thing. You know, Hebrew was, uh, it, it, uh, it was used, but used mostly for religious purposes uh, throughout all, through the dispersion. And, uh, Jewish people spoke a variety of languages and then amalgamated, uh, you know, Hebrew and German to make Yiddish, Hebrew and Spanish to make Ladino, uh, and, uh, and so on. But it, uh, it really is, uh, you know, a marvelous work of God. So, that, so when we remember uh, the Amalekites uh, and we remember Haman, uh, we remember that no matter who the uh, current version is of the Amalekites, no matter who the current version is of Haman, they will never be victorious over uh, you know, the Jewish people. It isn't going to happen. That's because God is king, you know, and not uh, the kings uh, of, of, this, uh, of this world. You know, when, uh, uh, when um, Moses uh, was concluding his last speeches, you know, uh, he, uh, he, had, he had two songs. Moses did, right? One is, uh, we mentioned it actually, didn't we, a minute ago. In Exodus 15, when the, the people cross over on dry ground into the wilderness. And the other one is at the end of his life in Deuteronomy chapter 32. In Deuteronomy 32, this song of Moses is kind of like bad news and good news. The point of uh, chapter 32 of Deuteronomy is for the people to have a testimony to remember that when things get really bad, even to the point where you will leave the land, remember that God has never and will never give up on you. It might feel that way when all seems to just go wrong. Imagine being uh, a Jewish person living uh, you know, around the year 600 or 590, or 580, you know, in uh, the land uh, of uh, Israel, in Jerusalem. And here you have the temple and you had people, when you read the book of Jeremiah, you see the, po the politics of the day. That you had a group of people that saw the temple and said, nothing can happen to Jerusalem because the temple is here. So Jeremiah, quit being like a wet rag here. Cut it out. In fact, some people believe that he was collaborating with the Babylonians because he was saying that Nebuchadnezzar is going to come and they're going to overtake the land and go, go to Babylon. 
The reason he could say that is because he knew that it was not the end. But you had these other people who believed that there's nothing that can happen to the temple. Well, when the temple is destroyed in 586, suddenly faith is shaken. How could this be? But not for Jeremiah and not for those who listened to him because he was relying, his informed theology came from Deuteronomy chapter 32, along with the revelation that God gave him, that look at Days are going to come when it's going to be very difficult, but I will never give up on you. So in Deuteronomy 32, you read uh, here, beginning in verse 15. But Yeshurun, and Yeshurun is like a, uh, what would you call it? Like a pet name, like a, a, a name, uh, an intimate name that God uses for Israel that displays his, you know, his affection, his affection for them. But Yeshurun grew fat and kicked. You are grown fat uh, thick and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scorned the rock of his salvation. They made him jealous with strange gods, with abominations. They provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons who were not God, to gods whom they have not known, new gods who came lately, whom your fathers did not dread. You neglected the rock who begot you and forgot the God who gave you birth. And the Lord saw this and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and daughters. Then he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end shall be. And he goes on to say, you know, there are perverse generations, sons uh, uh, that have no faithfulness. Uh, but then if you go all the way down uh, to, for example, verse 36, uh, 35, verse 35. Vengeance is mine and retribution in due time, for their foot will slip, for the day of their calamity is near, and the impending things are hastening upon them. For the Lord will vindicate his people. He will have compassion on his servants when he sees their strength is gone, and there is none remaining bond or free. He will say, where are their gods? In other words, he's going to wait. He's going to wait. He never gives up on them. And then he says in verse 39, See now that I, I am he. And there is no God besides me. And then uh, you read uh, in verse 42 and 43, well, verse 43. Rejoice, O nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance on his adversaries and will atone for his land and his people. He will atone for his land and his people. So the point there is that the day is going to come when you're going to have to leave the land. But I will never give up on you. I will never forsake you. Uh, I will never uh, leave you. So uh, uh, we remember the Amalekites because even though uh, these people came against Israel, uh, they did not, they did not uh, prevail. Uh, but God uh, vindicates uh, his, uh, his people. So that's one, uh, one reason that we remember the, the uh, Amalekites, God's faithfulness uh, uh, toward Israel. And the reason I bring up these verses in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 32, because it, in, in regard to Israel, it, it is an amazing thing because isn't it true, don't we all know people or groups of people, of believers, who would say, well, the Jewish people, they rejected the Messiah. 
They rejected the Messiah. So how could God still show favor to Israel? How could Israel still be the chosen people? That can't be because Israel has rejected the Messiah. Well, all you have to do is read, a, a, you know, the rejecting of Yeshua by Israel I, was not the first time that the Jewish people uh, rejected the, the grace and mercy of God. You go all the way back in history, but God remained faithful. That's why Yeshua could come. Yeshua, you know, if God had given up uh, on the Jewish people, uh, the Messiah or a Savior for the world would have to come from a different group of people, you know? Because uh, if Israel was going to have forfeited the calling of God, it would have been long before uh, the days of Messiah. But just as when the people went into the Babylonian captivity, even though they had sinned, God did not reject them and brought them back. And even though our people are in unbelief in the vast, vast, vast majority, we cannot, you know, you you can't uh, uh, forget about that. That the The fact remains that God remains faithful to his people. How could there be an Eretz Yisrael? How could there be a land of Israel today without the hand of God? It would be impossible. Yes, indeed, it would be impossible. But despite it all, even though Yeshua is still the rejected Messiah, God shows his faithfulness to his people. That's what makes this issue of blotting out the Amalekites, so powerful. Think about the Esther story. You know, something that's kind of interesting, you ever think about where it takes place? It's not exactly in Jerusalem, right? It's in Persia, right? And in that time period, they all could have gone back to Jerusalem. It was, this is not the captivity time. This is after that. And so here, they chose to remain in Persia, just like the majority of Jewish people were, in, were still, very frankly, in the, around the Baghdad area in, in Babylon. But they, they, were in, uh, they were in Persia, and here uh, a god sees this Haman, even though it's outside of the land, and God, through an amazingly strange set of circumstances, redeems the people. I will just say, Esther is not, in one, from the heavenly perspective, she's in the perfect place. But from a horizontal perspective, she is not in a good place. Okay? Uh, but God, in his uh, providence, placed her in the perfect place to make a difference in that period of time. And that is why, what does Mordecai say in the fourth chapter? For such a time as this. Perhaps God has raised you up. Remember, she was balking at it. Like, there's nothing I can do, that, you know, uh, Mordecai. But Mordecai won't take no for an answer. And so he, sa- he challenges her. Uh, for such a time as this, perhaps God has raised uh, you up. Uh, and so, in, you know, in, the, in our lives, in the world in which we live, uh, regardless of what may be the ultimate reasons for why things, the ultimate reasons for why things happen. Things happen and God calls us to act, you know? Uh, and, and, uh, and so we see it there. And so uh, also, 
uh, you know, in, in our own day. Uh, God uh, calls us to act as well. So on another level, what we see is, is that in our world today, uh, Amalekites still uh, are still around. Enemies of God. Enemies of God are still around. Now, the question though remains, and it's a really important one, what is it about the Amalekites? Why are they blotted out? Well, what I would suggest is, is that their particular, uh, what they did to the Jewish people in the wilderness, uh, we could say affected the moral and ethical sensibilities of God. In other words, you know, in Deuteronomy 25, God gives a reason. He says why blotting them out. And it doesn't just say they were an enemy, but it says something very particular, right? So in, uh, if you go back there to Deuteronomy 25, when he says, remember what, what Amalek did to you along the way uh, when you came out of Egypt, it says how he met you along the way and attacked among you all the stragglers at your rear when you were faint and weary. And then it says, and he did not fear God. Okay? I'm going to suggest that this issue of, yes, of course he did not fear God. I mean, quite clearly, he did not fear God. But the issue of how he attacked them, okay? Uh, among you, all the stragglers at your, basically like the women and the children and the vulnerable people. This irritated, <laughs> there's no good word for it, you know? Uh, the, uh, the, the sensibilities of God. And because of this, it's different than the Moabites. It's different than the Egyptians. It's different than the Babylonians. It's different than the Assyrians. There's a lot of, but we could go through, you know, like the telephone book of, of enemies of Israel throughout the, but the Amalekites, they're the ones who have to be blotted out. And this seems to be uh, the unique feature. And so this is really very important to us because when we talk about Amalekites, we could, you know, uh, it, it, it'd be very easy to just reduce this to a nice little devotional about Amalekites in our lives. We'll get there at the end in a couple of minutes. But it's important that we see something bigger than ourselves. And that is we're filled with a world of Amalekites. We're filled, this world is filled with people who do, people and people groups who do not fear God and come against those who are vulnerable in our world, whether it's entire people groups or individuals, whatever it may be. And we need to see ourselves kind of like Esther, that perhaps we are living in a day and we're living in a moment, we're living in a time where God has called us to speak up for such a time as this. You know, uh, it's interesting that, um, I won't say who, but one of our uh, B'nai uh, Mitzvah Avraham uh, young ladies coming up uh, later this year has a portion uh, that includes uh, the, uh, the narrative of the, uh, the Reubenites, you know, and the Gadites and half the tribe of Manasseh going, uh, leaving their women and children and crossing the Jordan and fighting with their, fighting, you know, with their brothers, right, 
Uh, and then they go back to the other side of the Jordan where they're going to live. And the point of it is, is that they, uh, they were uh, responsible for, their, for the big picture, even though it wasn't personally uh, to their personal benefit. In other words, they, they, they were going to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Everything would be fine. But yet they fought with their brothers to, um, to be able to conquer uh, uh, the land. So there was a, they had a responsibility to the whole. And uh, wow, what a great conversation uh, we had about that. And you'll be hearing. And, and uh, you know, it kind of is reminiscent of what Abraham Joshua Heschel uh, said, right? Few are guilty, but all are responsible. Few are guilty, but all are responsible. And so just like Mordecai and Esther, Esther had a responsibility to her people. Even though she may have lived, who knows? But she had a responsibility to her people, and that's what Mordecai was inculcating to her. We have a responsibility, yes, to our people uh, in a variety of ways. That's a primary motivation of why we share the good news and willing to be ostracized uh, and willing to not be in the in crowd in our uh, Jewish community uh, uh, because we care so deeply that we have a responsibility. But we have another responsibility to the greater community to blot out the Amalekites to blot out the evil in our world who come against those who are vulnerable. And you could think of, uh, you know, I hate to bring up one thing because there's like many, many things in this world that are evil and we, we hear about them, we, we uh, see it on the news, and, and thankfully some of us here even participate in, in a variety of ministries like uh, human trafficking, uh, homeless ministry, prison uh, ministry, other, other things uh, that are countless and, and things that we hear about uh, uh, around the world that uh, we indeed have a, uh, a responsibility. And so, you know, it's interesting in, um, in the, well, first in Psalm 94, I wasn't going to turn there, but okay, Psalm 94, I'm having this argument in my head right there. In uh, Psalm 94, you have uh, this statement. Oh, Lord, God of vengeance. You know, when it starts out like that, you know what I mean? God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Render recompense to the proud. How long shall the wicked, O Lord, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour forth words. They speak arrogantly. All who do wickedness vault themselves. They crush thy people, O Lord, and afflict thy heritage. Uh, they slay the widow and the stranger. Isn't it interesting? The widow and the stranger. That's what caught my attention in this psalm. Not just the widow and the orphan. The widow and the stranger. There's like a, a real concern for the stranger. Okay? And murder the orphans. And they have said, the Lord does not see, nor does the Lord of Jacob pay heed. In other words, they don't fear God. Like the Amalekite. I, the uh, point I want to make about this is, it's not wrong to pray that God would get rid of the evil, okay? It is not wrong. It's in the Bible, okay? Uh, Psalm 94 was written by a godly man, not somebody that, like, lost his temper and had to get, you know, had to get control of himself eventually, you know, and repent, okay? Uh, that's very important. The, the passages uh, that, you, that immediately come to mind from the Sermon on the Mount to do with our personal relationships with, with people, you know, offenses taken and things of that nature. Uh, 
But when we read about evil in the Bible, we read people praying that God would take vengeance. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, but love your neighbor as yourself, right? There in uh, Leviticus 19. We leave that, uh, we leave that uh, uh, to God. We leave that to God. Uh, and, and so I just wanted to point that out, that you see this uh, anger, a real anger against what is evil in this world, okay? And, uh, you know, we can call that righteous indignation. That's fine, you know? Uh, it doesn't mean that uh, we become vigilantes, that kind of thing. But we do see this emotion of anger against evil, right? But then we also, though, read in the Brit Hanasha a couple of interesting passages here on the, on the more positive side of this. In uh, James, book of James, chapter uh, 1, all right? You're familiar with it. In verse, the last verse of the chapter. This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. The point of that verse there is that we are called indeed to be proactive, to meet the needs of the vulnerable. Orphans and widows is like a euphemism for that. You know, it's not just uh, if you have one parent, but you're living in a street, you don't count because you're not an orphan. You know, it's, it's a euphemism for, for vulnerable people, whoever they may be in whatever age it might be, okay? That there is a ethical and moral responsibility upon us to do that. This is basically, you know, what did Samuel mean? Better to obey than sacrifice? It's more important to take care of orphans and widows than to make sure we say the right prayer on Shabbat morning. That's kind of what Samuel was getting at. Hear the voice of God and do the right thing. And do the right thing. That's what Esther did. And that is basically what God was telling uh, what Moses was saying to the Israelites about, you know, blotting out the Amalekites. It's a judgment from God. Then you have in the Gospel of Luke, Yeshua kind of gives his uh, program. I hate to use that terminology. But in Luke chapter 4, when he goes into the synagogue in Nazareth, right? It says in verse 17, And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book, and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Right? He, he, he anointed me to preach the good news to the poor, proclaim release to captives, recovery of sight to the blind, free those who are downtrodden. And you know what's really interesting about that? We don't have time, but if you read like the next 10 verses or so, you read uh, that basically uh, he talks about the fact how uh, Elijah and Elisha uh, met the needs of certain people and they weren't Jewish, right? Uh, and, and they get very angry at him. Uh, Yeshua about that. And he's making the point there that there, you're going to be angry with me because he came to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, yes, but also as a light of revelation 
uh, to the Gentiles. Uh, and, uh, and how important it is to recognize that that's what Yeshua says. That's, you know, uh, what he says. This is who I am, what I came to do. Then uh, in Matthew chapter 25, at the very end, just about the end of his teaching, regular teach, you know, teaching ministry before he died, he says this. Now, certainly you can make the argument he's talking about Israel, but, uh, but I would say that his point was uh, more universal when he says this. He separates the sheep on his right, the goats on his left, right? Then it says, then the, in verse 34 of Matthew 25, then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these, my brother, these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire from which was prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me and naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into it. So we see that Yeshua is concerned about taking responsibility to care for people. That's what he calls us to do. Yes, he calls us, of course, to share the good news. No doubt. Go and make disciples. You know, but being a disciple is a very, it's a very big thing. Being a disciple isn't just saying a prayer. It's living a certain kind of life in Yeshua. And that is indeed what God calls us to. And so I think when we read about, the, you know, the Amalekites and we think about Haman and all of that, we need to think about, you know, bigger than uh, my own personal world, but this whole world. And perhaps God has raised you up for such a time as this. In whatever place you are, where you work, where you live, uh, where you socialize, where you visit, whatever it might be. Just like, you know, Esther, you know, for such a time as this, she was in a particular place. Perhaps God is calling you to blot out the Amalekites, the evil uh, in this world through prayer and you know, positive action in the lives of people. So important. God indeed calls us to it. You know, it's interesting that uh, in the book of Esther, uh, in the ninth chapter, uh, when it talks about uh, celebrating the holiday, it says this. And this has become kind of a big thing I've even seen on Facebook. Uh, you know, people buying certain things and so on. In... Um, Chapter 9, in verse 20, it says, Then Mordechai recorded these events 
and he sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, near and far, obliging them to celebrate the 14th day of the month Adar and the 15th day of the same month annually. Because on those days, the Jews rid themselves of their enemies. And it was a month which was turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and rejoicing and sending portions of food to one another and gifts to the poor. The sending of portions, right? The sending of portions, mishloach manot, right? Uh, of like gift baskets for people. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, giving... Uh, uh, the. When I was a child, what we used to do is collect canned goods at Purim. I don't know if you remember do, if you're Jewish in your synagogue. That's what we used to do is collect canned. It was a time like you would uh, give things, give uh, food to poor people or a clothing drive or, you know, uh, uh, baskets of uh, goodies and things and, and leave them on somebody's doorstep, you know, that, that kind of thing. Well, you know, in, in a spiritual way, we could say, uh, sending portions is meeting the needs of people. Sending portions is going out of our way to be a blessing to those who are, on need, who are in need in whatever situation uh, that might be where we can make a difference in, uh, in somebody's life. And then finally, you know, uh, in applying this personally, let's face it, I, I mean, it is a very valid application, I think, to say that we have not only Amalekites, you know, enemies of Israel and all that, uh, not only enemies in this, in this world of, of righteousness, enemies of morality, enemies of dignity and all that, but we have personal Amalekites in varieties, in varieties of ways, right? Things that are coming against us. Uh, whether, you know, it be uh, some kind of uh, moral and ethical or a, de a demonic influence or a disease or something bad, whatever it may be, uh, you know, I think it's important for us to recognize this. Just like what God said through Moses to the Jewish people, that no matter what happens, no matter what it looks like, God indeed gets the victory at the end, no matter what, whether it's in this life or the resurrection. Because the reality, the real reality is, is that our ultimate victory is in the resurrection. Uh, and the fact is, is that we read some really encouraging words. You know, Paul talks about this in a variety of places. And, uh, you know, at the very end, I'm not going to read the whole thing, just the very end of um, the very end of the eighth chapter of Romans, the end of it. This is the culmination of what he starts to say around verse 18, but I won't read all that. You read it on your own. But he says this. This is like when, he, when, it, when it's all said and done, you know, when he says like the sufferings of the present time can't be compared to the glory that awaits us. And even, yes, we ourselves groan. Yes, even us, he says, even us, we who have received the first fruits of the Spirit. Yes, even us, we groan waiting for the redemption of, of our body. But then he, you know, and then he goes on and he, you know how Paul is, he's a little wordy, right? But when it's all done, the last line, when all is said, the bottom line is this. In verse 38 and 39, the last two verses of the chapter. For I am convinced 
that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Messiah Yeshua our Lord. Nothing. And that's what we need to get. And that's why we remember this blotting out of the Amalekites. And that's why we continue to boo Haman's name. Because no matter what we see in this world, yes, the world is a bad place. There is anti-Semitism like we haven't seen in our lifetimes. There is all kinds of terrible things going on. But we do not place our faith horizontally. Our faith is not in people. People will always disappoint you. But God never will. And that is why in the book of Hebrews, after all is said and done, after the, you know, all the things that we read about in uh, Hebrews chapter 11, that we keep our eyes fixed on Yeshua, the author and finisher of our faith. We keep our eyes fixed on him. For he is indeed our hope. So no matter who or what the Amalekite is, yes, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Yes, there will be victory in this life and for sure in the world to come. Because that resurrection is a real thing, you know? And let us never, uh, let us never forget that. And that is indeed our hope. And that is indeed where we have our eyes fixed. So be encouraged. Just as God has not forsaken uh, Israel with all of the baggage that goes with that, God has not forsaken. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we live in a fallen world with lots of Amalekites that come in a variety of ways. But Lord, thank you that in your Ruach we can stay above the fray. That in your Ruach, in your spirit, Lord, in the person of Yeshua, we can navigate through the choppy waters of this life. We can have joy unspeakable, even in the midst of difficulty. Lord, let us not be like the rest of this world and just get down, you know, and like de just depressed over what we see. Lord, let us be a testimony of people who have something, have that trust in you, Lord despite the circumstances. And yes, Lord, we pray for healing and we pray for cure. And uh, Lord, we pray that whatever the great difficulty in our life is, that you would bring healing to our hearts and healing to our bodies. Yes, now, Lord. But our trust in you is not based on what you have done for me lately, but on the death and resurrection of Yeshua. For indeed, that is the good news. Just as we said when we were reading the Torah, Lord, the good news was that there was a tabernacle and there, were, there could be sacrifices and people could be drawn near to, to you, Lord. Thank you for the good news that you sent the one and only sacrifice for our sins, Messiah Yeshua, that when we embrace him, we come near to you in a new and living way, never to be separated from you ever with all of the hope and comfort that is available from you. And so, Lord, when we think about Purim and Haman, thank you, Lord, that we have a story there of victory. And thank you, Lord, that indeed the name of Haman 
the name of the Amalekites, the name of all enemies, will one day be completely blotted out. And thank you for the victories, indeed, that you give us today and the hope that we have forever. We pray in Messiah's name. Amen.